0: Amen. Morning, you guys are seeming a little a little tired this morning. I'm just you know, I'm just putting that on you because I'm really tired this morning. The good news is when I get really tired, I drink a lot of coffee. So I hope you're ready to listen fast. Um, for a couple of reasons, not just the coffee. The topic before us this morning is a little tricky. Um. In fact, so I think the question's up there, so there's the question as it came in. So those of you who are visiting with us, or if you're a guest with us, man, I'm glad you're here. Um, You have to think we're crazy for a lot of reasons, but in particular, when you see what it is that we're going to attempt to walk through this morning together, you're like, wow, that's a very friendly message this morning. Um, In fact, what's happened is over a few months, uh, our membership submitted their questions that they thought they would like to have answered during the summer preaching series, and then We dumped all those questions out and we had about 555 votes come in. And we ranked them from number one through number nine. And we're preaching through those questions as voted upon by our members. And today's question we grouped together, um, trying to, trying to make, um, be able to get through a couple more questions normal. But, but I gotta be honest with you, these are two incredibly different questions. And I'll show my hand a little at the beginning with two very different answers. And so I need to separate them, answer one, and then answer the second, so that there's no confusion. So I need to ask that you uh, extend grace to me, and, and, and uh, don't check out, because there'll be a few moments in this where if you check out, then check back in, you're going to think I'm a heretic, so I'm going to need you to stick with me. Um, the, the two questions are, will those who never hear the gospel go to heaven or hell? Do people who never hear the gospel go to hell? That's one. The other one is, what happens if a child dies? before they can understand the gospel. I want to deal with that one first. What happens if a child dies before they can understand? Please take your Bibles and go to Psalm 139. I've been there a couple times even in the last few months, but this seems to be one of the most appropriate places to launch out of this morning. Just a little explanation behind it. I'm going to talk about the unborn child, the, the born child, the young infant. Um, even in this category, I believe, uh, it's actually, I would answer the same way for somebody who would be developmentally disabled, uh, intellectually uh, handicapped. I would have the same answer for them. So if you follow this along, you'll understand. So th- um, let me read Psalm 139 just to kind of get some scripture underneath us before we jump in. Psalm 139, starting in verse 13. No, you know what? I'm going to start in verse 1. I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, Lord, you have searched me and you have known me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up, you understand my thoughts from far away. You observe my travels, my rest. You're aware of all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know all about it, Lord. You've encircled me. You've placed your hand on me. That This wondrous knowledge is beyond me. It's lofty, and I'm unable to reach it. Where can I go to escape your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I live at the eastern horizon or settle at the western limits, even there your hand will lead me. Your right hand will hold on to me. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light around me will be night, even in the darkness, well, it's not dark to you. The night shines like the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. It was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works, wondrous. I know this very well. My bones weren't hidden from you. When I was made in secret, when I was formed in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw me when I was formless. All my days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them began. God, how precious your thoughts are to me. How vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. God, if you'd only kill the wicked, you bloodthirsty men, you stay away from me who invoke you deceitfully. Your enemies swear by you falsely. Lord, don't I hate those who hate you and detest those who rebel against you. I hate them with an extreme hatred. I consider them my enemies. (laughs) Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there's any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way. I've always found verses 23 and 24 interesting as they follow verses 19 to 22 where all of a sudden David's like, I hate all these people! Wipe them out! Oh God, you probably should check my heart. I have a feeling I may be offline a little bit here. (laughs) What happens if a child dies before they can understand? I have gotten that question um, countless times in the roughly 20 years I've been in ministry. That question is not um, a theological one when it's asked. It's a personal one. Virtually every time that question comes up, it is through tears. Um, Usually... Um, If the child is an infant, the question comes up, so how old do they need to be to get in? What's the age of accountability? So, uh, I'm just going to walk through with you what I say to a family who has asked me these questions after they've lost a child. The first thing I will tell them is this, hope is not found in the age of your child. There's no that's a false hope. There's no hope in the age of a child. Hope is found in God's character. And that's where you need to begin. God is trustworthy. He is just, he is right, he is faithful, and he is good. He can be trusted. Psalm 34 tells us he doesn't despise those who have a broken heart. Psalm 86 tells us that he is full of compassion and he is gracious and he's long suffering as he, he's abundant in mercy and in truth. Second Peter 3 tells us that he doesn't want anybody to perish, but his desire is that all would come to know him and all would come in repentance. Revelation 21 tells us that, that, that he is a God who will wipe away every tear from our eyes. There'll be no more death in his presence. There'll be no more sorrow in his presence. There'll be no more crying in his presence. Pain will be gone forever. We can be assured based on God's character that God will do what is right and loving because he is the standard of rightness and love. We just read Psalm 139, and as you get to the middle section there, you get to see it was God who created the inward parts. It was God who knit me together in my mother's womb. It was, it was God who saw me being formed in secret. It was God who saw me even when I was formless. It was God who wrote all my days in His book and planned every single one of them, even before one of them had begun. It was God's intimate involvement in, in, in our creation as a, as a baby in the womb. So, just from that alone, there's reason to believe that a caring God who who created that life to begin with and knows intimately everything about that life, should that life end in its infancy, there'd be every reason just from that psalm alone to be able to just trust the grace of God. The God who is good, compassionate, and who is by nature a Savior. He can be trusted. So I'd begin with the family talking about the nature of God. And then I would slip into, we need to also discuss the nature of our children. Now, the Bible is absolutely crystal clear that all children are born sinners. I know you think you may have the one exception to that rule. Actually, it's usually parents are like, "Uh uh-uh, I don't think that at all. They may think it, but I don't think it. <clears throat> because of Romans 5.12, through one man's sin entered into the world and death by sin because all have sinned, through, through, through the embedding of the sin nature in all of humanity, um, our children are born with an irresistible bent toward sin. And any, any notion that children are born morally neutral and free from a predisposition to sin is contrary to what the Bible teaches. The Bible tells us that sinfulness isn't a condition that comes upon people when they're old enough to actually choose to sin. The Bible teaches us it's a condition of the entire human race, and every conception brings into being a sinful life. Psalm 58, it might be 85, <laughs> says that we, um, the wicked go astray even from the womb. So, so no child, whether it be unborn, born, whether it be a, a developmentally disabled or challenged child, no child, no person, no human being is innocent or deserving of salvation. The nature of God is one of compassion and grace and mercy. The nature of children is in need of grace, compassion, and mercy. The beautiful thing is the nature of salvation is grace, compassion, and mercy applied. Salvation is a picture of God giving you what you don't deserve. That's grace. Salvation is also a picture of God not giving you what you do deserve, which is mercy, and so every single one of us in this room, it doesn't matter at what age you came to know Jesus Christ, you are in Jesus Christ not by any works of your own. You're, you're not in Christ because you got baptized. You're not in Christ because you're a member of a church. You're not in Christ because you regularly tithe. You're not in Christ because you carry a big old Bible and wear a tie every once and again. You're not in Christ because you don't swear. You're not in Christ because you're not an alcoholic, You're not in Christ because you love your spouse and your children. You're in Christ because of grace and mercy. In fact, all of those good things you would pile up are a huge offense to God because God said, I don't care how hard you try, all of your righteousness, it's like filthy rags. And what do we do as a result? We don't be like, oh, you're right, I should trust you for my salvation. We're like, no, I'm going to do more good then. It's a slap in the face of the God who told us that our righteousnesses are disgusting to him. So how were you saved? Were you saved by the law? Were you saved by doing good works? No, you were saved by grace and you were saved by mercy. You were saved not by anything you did, but you were saved because of what Jesus did for you. So what does that mean for infants? What does that mean for unborn? What does that mean for the little babies? Do do they need to be baptized? Do they need to be dedicated? Do I need to be baptized? Excuse me. Do I need to be a, a member of a church? No, they would come into the presence of God only through the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ because that's the only way anybody can be saved. Jesus told us that. I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father but through me. No one gets to heaven based on innocence. They get to heaven because Jesus loved us enough to leave heaven for us. Jesus loved us enough to take our place on the cross. Jesus loved us enough to set us free from sin because his righteousness has been credited to our account. So my answer to this question to a grieving family would be, well, what happens if a child dies before they can understand? It would be, look, look at the nature and character of who God is. He is compassionate and gracious and mercy. Your child is in need of compassion, grace, and mercy. Salvation is compassion, grace, and mercy. I believe uh, that when a child dies, that they are immediately ushered into heaven. I don't think it's because they're innocent. I think it's because... Jesus' blood is applied to their account. Jesus' righteousness is given to them and credited to them. Um, So do you see this anywhere in Scripture? Good question. I'm glad you guys think that way. (laughs) There's nothing overt. There's nothing super specific. It's not lost on me. Um, There are some things you can find in Scripture. Job chapter 3, there's a comment that Job makes in the middle of his suffering, and he says... And I wish I was just a, a stillborn baby who was in rest. So there's the inference is that there is a removal from difficulty and instead there is rest from a, a child who is stillborn. First Kings 14 talks about a young child who is living in a culture of just heinous sin and yet this child is taken. He, is, he dies and the comment that's made about that young child is there was something good found in him so God took him away. Um. But, but I, 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 regardless of those, I think those just infer grace and mercy. Let me have you take your Bibles. Go to 2 Samuel 12, because I think and, and this is probably the clearest or most specific reference to what I'm talking about, that we have hope that our children, our young children, are ushered immediately into the presence of God. Second Samuel chapter 12. give you a little context. So this is right after David has an affair with Bathsheba. And um, the prophet Nathan comes to David and accuses him, rightly so, calls him on the carpet, holds him accountable. David confesses what it is that he did, and and Nathan says, the judgment for you is this, the son that is born to Bathsheba will die. We see in 2 Samuel 12 right around verse 15 that the the Lord struck the baby that Uriah's wife Bathsheba had borne to David, and he became deathly ill. And in those days, it was seven days from that baby being, becoming ill, in those seven days, David refused any care. He wouldn't eat, he wouldn't be comforted, he wept, he mourned, he cried. He wailed. He called upon God. He, he he begged God to intervene. And and it says that his counselors continued to come alongside him and tried to get him up from the ground, but he refused to get up from the ground because he was in such anguish of his soul as his his newborn baby was was sick and dying, and David was just beside himself, and he he, he just he, he could not concentrate on doing anything else. And on the seventh day, it says his counselors, his leadership team, his elders, his, his, his friends came into the room where he was, and they saw him in anguish on the floor, and they began whispering to each other. You see how angry and, and, and sad and hurt he is that the baby was sick? What's he going to do when he finds out the baby just died? I'm not telling them, you tell them. And you have this discussion that happens among that that group, like, I'm not telling them, you tell them, I'm not telling them. And David, who is in the midst of mourning, overhears their whispers, notices them and puts two and two together and asks a very simple question in verse 19. Is the baby dead? And the reply is, he is. And now David does something unthinkable. After mourning for seven days, weeping and gnashing and and, and tearing his clothes and throwing ashes on himself, refusing to eat, refusing to be cared for, refusing to be clean, upon hearing that the baby had passed, it says that David got up from the ground, verse 20, he washed, he anointed himself, he changed his clothes, he went to the Lord's house, he worshiped, then he went home you got something to eat. Now, everything has changed. When the, when the baby was sick, it was David who was lying on the floor and refused to be comforted. Now that the baby has passed, all of a sudden, David has cleaned himself. David is, is, has left where he's been. He went home. He washed up. He put new clothes on. He began to eat. And, and his elders, his, his friends, his counselors were completely baffled by this. Verse 21, they asked him, why have you done this? While the baby was alive, you fasted, you wept, but when he died, you got up and ate food. David answered this, David, being a man who throughout all of his writings, all of his hymns, all of his psalms, all of his poetry, was a man who was very confident that he would spend all of eternity with the good shepherd. David's answer to them is this, while the baby was alive, I fasted. And I wept, because I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let him live. But now that the baby is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will never return to me. There is a shift in David's thinking in that moment Where there is a comfort to his soul that otherwise is inexplicable. And that comfort in his soul is, oh, okay, he's gone. And there's mourning and there's sadness, but there is coming a day when I will walk into the presence of the good shepherd and one of the people who will greet me will be my boy. Now, take that and contrast it with a story that's told just about seven chapters later in, in, in chapter 19. It, it's told about David's son, Absalom, who had created a rebellion against King David and was trying to throw a coup and take the, the country to himself and take the throne himself. And so so in this moment, David David continues to plead, protect my son, Absalom, even though he's rebelling against me. Protect my son, Absalom, even though he's rebelling against me. And then the, somebody comes to David and tells him, your son, Absalom, is dead, and it says that David... David is beside himself and he won't stop mourning. He won't stop weeping. And finally in, in chapter 19, the, the, the leader of his army, Joab, comes to him and says, King, you are disgracing the people who have risked their lives for you because you continue to mourn the rebel. Yes, it was your son, but he was a rebel. So, so the picture of contrast between David mourning for his two sons is very different. One is just pure anguish. And the other is filled with hope. Um, So I would say this, based on the nature of God, the nature of children, the nature of salvation, based on this picture of David with his sons, I would say with great confidence, although some would disagree with me, I would say with great confidence That I believe a child, unborn or born, developmentally challenged or not, that has not matured mentally to the place they can understand law, grace, sin, and salvation are carried into the presence of God as the righteousness of Jesus is applied to them. That's how I would answer that question. Thanks for asking an easy one. And sadly, that was the easy one of the two. Here we go. Hmm. I promise, if you're a guest with us, I'm a really upbeat guy. (laughs) I'm an optimist. (laughs) Will those who never hear the gospel go to heaven or to hell? Uh, Again, uh, here, let me do this. We'll take your Bibles. Turn to Romans chapter 1. We're going to do a quick perusal through some of the beginning of the book of Romans. While you're turning there, I will admit right up front again, there is admittedly no uh, place to turn in Scripture that says those who are, have not heard the gospel, those who haven't heard about Jesus, they're definitely going to heaven, or they're definitely going, there's no place to turn. Um, but that being said, the Bible isn't silent about it. Um, the Bible is actually kind of clear about it. I'm going to ask that you don't... I'm going to give you my answer. And then and I'd like to walk through scripture and show you why that's my answer. And while I do that, I'd like to ask that you don't... Don't throw things. How's that? That's first. Don't, um, don't do that. Don't, don't check out. Well, those people who never hear the gospel go to heaven or hell. I'm going to tweak the, the wording of that just a little bit. Those never hearing about Jesus... Are lost and their destiny not because of their ignorance but because of their rejection of God their rejection of his rescue is hell I'm going to try to explain that I'm going to tell you up front that that should be heavy The reason I have you in the book of Romans is this. Ro- Romans is a wonderful book if you're trying to understand salvation. Okay. You start in Romans 1, and you start unpacking, and, and Paul walks through and says, this is why you need salvation, and this is how horrible you, have, uh, you are, that you've tried to earn your own salvation, how terribly it's gone. This is all those things. And then here's the glorious good news of salvation, and he unpacks those things. And that's usually what we turn to the book of Romans for, but, but what we need to understand is Romans is, I believe, an apologetic for reaching the unreached people. What, what Paul is doing in the book of Romans is this. He's, if you get to Romans 15, if you're reading through the book, you, you, when you get there, he, he says to this church in Rome, he says, I, I, I'm, this is my plan. I want to come to you. I'm going to be in Rome. And my desire isn't to stay in Rome. See, there's a church in Rome. You've heard about Jesus there in Rome. But if you continue going west, you end up in Spain and they know nothing of Jesus Christ. And so my desire is to come to Rome and to use you kind of as a hub. And I'm going to go to Spain because I don't want to build upon what other people have already started building. i want to go to those places where nobody has ever heard, and I'm going to lay out the truths of Jesus Christ, and we're going to watch people come gloriously to salvation. That's Paul's desire. And I think what he does in the book of Romans is he builds an argument starting in chapter one as to why we need to reach unreached people groups. Romans 1, 16 says this, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So, so what Paul says is, I, I will not be ashamed of the gospel. This is this is that the the gospel is the declaration of what Jesus Christ did for us. It's the 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 cry from the um the the battle. So somebody comes back from battle and says, You're not going to believe this. The battle is over. Victory has been won. You're free. That's the declaration that we are making in the gospel. Jesus Christ came and he willingly laid down his life for yours, and he was buried in a tomb, and three days later he was alive again. And you know what that means? Victory has been won. And it's ours. We're we're free because of what Jesus did. And and so Paul says, I will never be ashamed of that. I want to make that the point of everything that I do. And so that leads us into uh, these things. I'm going to put these points up and kind of, we're going to move through them pretty quickly. But I want to lay out seven different facts from Romans that um, will help guide our, our thinking to the answer to this question this morning. The first one is this. All people know God. Romans chapter 1, verse 19. Since what can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse... See, people know God, and I'll explain that a little bit, unpack it, but they have a knowledge of him. They can see through general or natural revelation that there is a one who is greater than all others. And in his creation and in his creative abilities and powers, God has revealed certain truths about himself, and all people, regardless of where they live, have access to those same truths because God has what? Clearly revealed himself. And he has done so, so that people cannot plead ignorance as an excuse, verse 20, for rejecting God. His invisible attributes, his eternal power, his divine nature. They have been clearly seen since the creation of the world being understood through what he has made. As a result, people are without excuse. And yet, all people reject God. Verse 21, for though they knew God, they didn't glorify him as God or show gratitude. Instead, their thinking became worthless and their senseless hearts were darkened. Claiming to become be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds, four-footed animals, and reptiles. This is the very nature of sin. The bent of humanity is we think we're wise and then we become fools. This is us. This is we. We worship created things instead of the the creator, and there is certainly enough evidence to show that whatever is created isn't God. And, and, and I'm not. I, I certainly do not want to pick on any specific people group or religion. Okay, that is not my intent. But but just to point uh, to worshiping the creation versus the creator, I cannot for the life of me understand how logically Hindus can look at cows. As a, a creature that <laughs> needs to be worshiped. Okay, I'm not making fun of Hindus. I am going to make fun of cows. Farmers, you know what I'm talking about. How can anybody look at that creature and be like, that's it? That's the hope. This is the one. Is he claiming to be wise? We've just simply become fools. Every single one of us, it doesn't matter who you are or where you are. It can be urban, suburban, or rural America. It can be in the most rural of jungles. Any place you go, the most remote of jungles, it doesn't matter where you are. All people have rejected God. One of the responses to that is, but you know those people who have never heard of Jesus, they did the best they could with what they had. The reality is, Paul says, that's Not good enough. The very core of our sin is to worship created things. Idolatry is not good enough. Lost humanity, we will constantly and consistently distort general revelation, the idea of creation, in order to make much of ourselves. And so because of this, there are no innocent people in the world. Turn over to chapter 3, Romans chapter 3. Paul says this clearly, there's no innocent people in the world. Look at verse 9. What then are we any better off? I and mean, not at all. We've already charged that both Jews and Gentiles are all under sin. As it's written, there is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. All alike have become worthless. There is no one who does what is good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They deceive with their tongues. Vipers' venom is under their lips. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and wretchedness are in their paths. And the path of peace they haven't known because there's no fear of God before their eyes. No one is righteous. Not even one. All right, hold on. What happens then to the innocent guy in the jungles of Brazil? All right. Based on the way you just asked your question, that man undoubtedly goes to heaven. The problem is, That guy doesn't exist. There is no innocent guy in the jungles of Brazil. There is no innocent guy in in, in the the, the city of Baltimore. Oh, I knew that one, Frank. All right, let me try another one. There's no no innocent guy in Carroll County. There's no innocent guy in the United States of America. There is no innocent guy on the world as we know it. There is no innocent guy, period, period. They're guilty, and they stand guilty before a holy God, and that's why they need a Savior. See, what we've done is we have downplayed the holiness of God, and we've exaggerated the potential goodness of humanity. We have said, "Well, God is holy, but, 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 but." And well, if they, you know, maybe if they were just faithful enough to do this, then the holiness of God would come down, and we'd be. You have to understand. It's not that we commit sins. It's not that we are sinners. It's verse um, nine it says we are all under sin. That idea is that we are prisoners to it. We are slaves to it. We are addicted to sin, and we are unable to break free from it on our own. There are no innocent people in the world. And God never condemns someone who is innocent, but all people are condemned for rejecting God. Chapter 3, verse 19 Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are subject to the law, so that every mouth may be shut and the whole world may become subject to God's judgment. For no one will be justified in his sight by the works of the law, because the knowledge of sin comes through the law. All people are condemned for rejecting God. As you stand before God, that picture is every mouth is shut. It's the picture of the person who knows they are guilty, who has confessed their guilt, and they stand before the judge, and they know that they are at the judge's mercy. Whatever whatever the judge passes down, they've got to willingly accept. No one will stand before God and be declared righteous on their own because every single one of us stands condemned, no matter how hard we try. In fact, our best effort condemns us even more. And chapter 1, verse 18 says, For God's wrath is revealed from heaven against all godlessness and unrighteousness of people who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. We stand under the wrath of God. Please understand that you are not condemned for rejecting the gospel. You are condemned for rejecting God. So because all people are condemned, the humanity is, is in sin They're separated from God because of their sin. But God has made a way of salvation. Chapter 3, verse 23, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But please don't stop there. That's a fantastic verse that helps us grapple with the depravity of our sinfulness. But we tend to quote that one and stop, keep reading. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, but they are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. And God presented him as an atoning sacrifice in his blood, received through faith to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed god presented jesus to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be righteous they would declare righteous the one who has faith in jesus god made a way of salvation this righteousness has been revealed in jesus and we are justified freely by his grace we're not saved from our sins because of what the romans did to jesus we're not saved from our sins because Jesus was arrested at night and falsely accused and slapped around and, and the, the, the hair of his beard was pulled out and he was spit upon and he was cursed and he was beaten and he was hung on the cross. That's, that's, we're not saved because of that. We are saved because Jesus took the holy and infinite wrath of God in its totality. Isaiah and Jeremiah pictures the wrath of God as a cup. And the cup is filled with God's wrath. Well, in that moment, on that cross, Jesus Christ drank the cup full. And it's the cup that you should have drank. God has made a way of salvation through that sacrificial atonement of Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ said, no one comes to the Father except through me. Peter preached that there is no, sa- there is salvation in no one else, for there is n- no other name under heaven by which man may be saved. So the conclusion is simple. People cannot come to God apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And I'm going to do a horrible disservice and skip chapter 4 completely and get to chapter 5, verse 1, where it says this. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been declared innocent by that judge we were standing before. And now we live in peace with God. But that peace, that innocence, comes only through believing in Jesus Christ. There is not a pass for those who haven't heard of Jesus. If there was, then sharing the gospel with that person would be the most cruel act you could do. Just think about it. So let's say that you're walking through downtown Baltimore and you come across somebody, you look at them like, hey, have you ever heard of Jesus? And they say, no. Okay. If you believe that there is a past for every person who has not heard the name of Jesus, the most ethical thing you could do in that moment is say, good, if you ever hear his name again, put your fingers in your ears, yell, and run away. Right? Because logically, if they've never heard of Jesus, then they have no worry about eternity because they'll spend eternity with God in heaven because they get a pass. However, (laughs) Christ commands the church, take the gospel to all people. Matthew 28, go into all the world, make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Mark 16, go into the world and preach the gospel to all creation. Look, look at Romans 10. That thought I felt bad about skipping 4. I'm skipping six, seven, eight, nine 9 now. Go to Romans 10. Um, 13, verse 13 is where I'll start. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then can they call on him that they haven't believed in? And how can they believe without hearing about him? And how can they hear without a preacher? And how can they preach unless they are sent as it is written? How beautiful are the feet of those who bring the Good news. So there is the, the the delineation of of how this occurs. Christ has commanded the church to go. So let me let me work this backwards. Is that okay? Let me work this backwards. I'll start down there in in verse fifteen and kind of work back up to thirteen. So that way maybe the logic helps a little bit better. It starts with Jesus sending his people. So Jesus sends his people, and they. Preach. They that doesn't mean stand up in front of a couple hundred people and, and do this. It it means it means they, they share the gospel. They speak of Jesus and what he has done for them. They they preach and the people they hear, unless you're preaching in an empty room. Then they don't hear. But if, if you're standing in front of anybody, they hear. And if they hear, they believe. Wait, they're out No. Understand this. Revelation chapter five tells us that there is a representative of every tribe, language, people, and nation before the throne of God. That means as you stand there and preach and they hear, that, that, that doesn't mean everybody's going to believe, but it certainly means somebody will. And if they believe, well, then they'll call. And if they call, then they'll be saved. There's only one place that breaks down, folks. Only one. And that's if his people don't go. One of my my heroes in the faith, a dead hero, C.H. Spurgeon, amazing pastor, said this. Will the heathen who haven't heard the gospel be saved? Now the real question is if those who have heard the gospel aren't taking it to the heathen, can they really be saved? See, God can do whatever he wants. And he's made it very clear that it's you and me that he wants to use. Every follower of Jesus, this is our call. Please don't don't sit here and be irritated by the bad news. Instead, obey Jesus. Um We've been praying as elders. I'm praying personally that um, God would raise up 50 people and send them in the next 10 years. And I will tell you, we are on our way to that already. What stinks is God doesn't check with us which people. He just takes whoever he wants, and we have to be good with it. Because some of you, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I wonder, you know what I meant. <laughs> I am praying that God raises up a people who aren't sitting in those seats waiting for a tingly feeling or goosebumps, but instead are willing to step out and obey Jesus now. I mean, it goes back to our our question that we're, we're, well, those who never hear the gospel go to heaven or hell. Folks, there are around 2 billion people who haven't heard about Jesus So they'll go to hell? Yeah. But that's not, it's not fair. Okay, first of all, you don't want fair. You want favoritism. Secondly, you really don't want God showing up and saying, fine, I'll give you what's fair. There's hell. Because that's what you deserve. That is what is fair. Hell is fair. We don't want Fair. Is it fair that in our rebellion, God showed up and rescued us? Is is it, is it fair that He took my nails, my crown of thorns, my cross, and that He drank that cup of God's wrath that was reserved for me? Is that fair? Is it, is it fair that I'm called His own? Is it fair that Jesus conquered sin, death, and the grave, all of which I deserve to be stuffed into? Is that fair? Is it fair that we're sitting here keeping the gospel to ourselves? Father, I ask that you would raise us up as a church that longs to share the good news of Jesus Christ with other people. This has not been fun in any way. Been hard. But God, what I do know is that you are glorified when we accept the hard truths of your word. So Lord, I pray you would be glorified even in this moment. I pray that men and women in this room, even boys and girls in this room, would understand the calling that you have placed on every single one of their lives to open their mouths about Jesus. And God, may they be obedient. Lord, help us to wrestle with what truly is fair. Help us to understand what we have versus what we deserve. And God, may that shake us to our core. Open our mouths. Open our mouths. Be pleased with our obedience, I pray. Amen.